when you bring that audience together to interact with one another, it becomes a community. When that community comes together to create impact towards a far greater purpose than your product or profits, it becomes a movement. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals, over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? In today's podcast, I have Lloyd Lobo. He is the co-founder of Boast AI. Uh, this is a bootstrap company he's taken from idea to over 10 million in annual recurring revenue. But his story is super impressive. This is a guy that immigrated to the US, really came from nothing. And along the way, he moved to San Francisco and he wanted to get into startups. And he did it by launching a community where he knew nobody started with Meetup, 10 people show up to his events. Now he has over 120,000 members. And then on the back of that, he launched Boast AI, which again, he bootstrapped to uh, eight figures. This episode is packed with insights on how to get started, how to do this idea of community-led uh, growth or marketing, how to make a product or offer that's so good that people will test it out. Recently, he launched a book that's actually out this week. It's really good, really tactical. The book is called From Grassroots to Greatness, and it gives the playbook for the 13 rules to build iconic brands with community-led growth. So if you're looking to start something and want to grow in a a really sustainable way with community, I, I think you'll enjoy this episode. All right, today on the podcast, I have Lloyd Lobo. And Lloyd, you've got an impressive background that we'll kind of get into. But first, how do you introduce yourself whenever you meet somebody? What do you say? What do you even say? Definitely, I say I am an entrepreneur and a community builder at heart. <laughs> that's, that's what I am. Immigrant, entrepreneur, community builder. Yeah, no, that's amazing, man. So we're going to get into it. I'm excited to compare notes on the book that you have coming out. You have bootstrapped an eight-figure company that's raised lots of money. You built a huge community. But before that, like, talk about Lloyd before going down this business journey. Because I think a lot of people that want to make that leap to do their own thing, you know how it is. It's so hard to like find that inflection point to just go. What was your life like before going down this path? Definitely. You know, the one thing I'll tell people is if you want to be an entrepreneur someday, any day, the best skill you can learn, the best thing you can do for yourself is try to be a Swiss army knife, a jack of all, a master of none. Try to put yourself in a position where you are working alongside founders, right? You become the average of the five people you surround yourself with. If you keep working alongside founders, it's but natural that eventually you're going to do a startup of yourself. But I'll walk through my journey. It might be unique in many ways, but maybe you'll find inspiration because it tells the story of don't let rejection rule you, let it fuel you. So I was born in Kuwait. 
my parents are from India. They were piss poor. They moved to Kuwait for better prospects, no tax. The currency was much higher than India, translated like 10x almost. And so they could send money to India. They weren't educated enough where they could immigrate to the West. And my childhood summers were spent in the slums of Mumbai, where my mom was from. We couldn't afford to go on vacation anywhere other than back to India, because when you worked in Kuwait, my dad had a deal where the company would give him two return tickets once a year to back to India. So my, slum, my childhood were, summers were spent three months every year in the slums of Mumbai, where watching TV was communal, eating food was communal, puddles were turned into ponds in the summer when it would rain and we'd all swim together. Even going to the bathroom was communal because there was no toilet in the house. And, you know, my, my fondest memories were that because every summer when we had to go back to Kuwait, I would cry and I didn't want to leave. Fast forward a few years, I think I was eight or nine years old when the Gulf War happened in Kuwait. And one morning my mom wakes me up and says, hey, you can't go to school anymore. So that day when I go down the building, I experienced something magical, right? In 2023, you see when a problem hits, it belabors and it festers and it turns into monsters, right? Bad news just spreads. But back then, there was no internet, there were no phones, the security had lapsed, and people were immediately thinking of solutions. Like, hey, I'm going to guard the building from this time to that time. The other person's like, I'll join you. Somebody else is like, I'll organize food supplies. Another person's like, if you have family members that are displaced, we'll give them shelter. And, and somebody else is like, hey, you know what? I know folks at the school, the school's empty, we'll, we'll organize something there. So every building became a sub-community, word of mouth spread, building over building over building. And it turned into the largest community-led evacuation movements, the largest grassroots movements that took people to safety, that evacuated people to safety, that coordinated with governments, with embassies, and with countries. And that day I experienced two very profound things. One, that a small group of people, a small community has immense power if they're driven by a great purpose, they can change the world. The second thing it taught me was the entrepreneurial spirit. And I didn't realize it back then, but you know, I'll, I'll walk through my journey of how those realizations started to drive me. I, I learned about the entrepreneurial spirit. You know, We think of entrepreneurship as making money, but what is entrepreneurship really? It's about taking an obscure idea to execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk, uncertainty, and ambiguity. There's no other risk and ambiguity when your life's on the line, when you don't know you're going to live or die. And as an eight or nine-year-old, I felt such a great sense of purpose. I felt so connected to that purpose. And the people I was around, they included me, that I felt like a little Rambo, that I would like wear this bandana and run alongside my dad and do things. And fast forward a few more years, we immigrated to Canada. I went to engineering school, graduated. I didn't want to work a regular job. I just, I just couldn't bring myself. I was like, you know what? I want to do something that's different. I was driven by this community, this risk. So I started asking other business people, hey, what's the best skill I could learn if I want to be an entrepreneur someday? And what kept coming up was, man, you need to learn to communicate better. You know, you're an engineer, you're an awkward engineer, you need to communicate better. And so as I talked to people, I realized the only way to get better at something is to put yourself in a situation or an environment that forces you to do that something over and over and over again. So if you want to get better at communicating, what job is going to force you to communicate over and over again? Sales. Nothing else, right? Nothing else forces you to communicate more than sales. 
So I started applying to sales jobs and nobody would give me a sales job because they're like awkward engineer. You know, why do you want to even go into sales to begin with? You're not cut out for it. I, I interviewed at companies like Xerox to like really small startups. And so I begged my way into getting a job cold calling at a startup. Now, the first cold call I did, I practiced four hours. And when the decision maker came on the line, I hung up <laughs> and every, everyone around me was laughing. Uh, and so what happened was I just kept going and going and going. Fast forward a year and I apply for another job in sales. My, my girlfriend, now wife, was in med school in New Jersey. So I wanted to be there. I get a visa, get a job in sales, go to a startup. And I realized quickly, it's not quite a sales job. I had to talk to customers to figure out what to build. Then I had to translate those requirements to devs in, with wireframes and engineering requirements. And go, well, guess what? I also needed to learn how to build a website and create marketing materials. And I'm like, what the hell? Right? They don't have a scalable, repeatable process for any of this. But I didn't have the liberty, man, the luxury of quitting and going to another job. I was in a visa in the U.S. So I'm like, okay, necessity is the mother of all inventions. I'm going to learn. Through cold calling, at least I knew how to communicate. So I like now meet with big companies like Tiffany, Armani, Simon & Schuster, pull their requirements. Through school, engineering school, I knew at least how to write requirements and wireframe. But like when it came to marketing, like website and all of that, I knew nothing. So I started Google searching, like how do you build a website and how do you do all this stuff? And every piece of content I came across back then was from HubSpot's inbound marketing community. They have this inbound marketing certification. So I went through that. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk had a course, I think, on video marketing. Nobody knew him. He was doing Wine TV at the time. But he never stopped, right? He believed in this vision of video and he's exploded. He is what he is today because he never stopped. But I learned everything through that community. And then fast forward a couple more years, my best friend from university were partners with every project. He wanted to do a startup and he called me. And I'm like, listen, you know, my wife got a fellowship at Stanford. We're going to move to California anyway. So I'm like, I'm going to be out of a job. Let's do this together. And I moved into his apartment. Now he was in Canada, in, in Calgary. And so I moved in with him. And when we <laughs> started to get, try to get early customers, it was very hard to land through cold calling and the tactics I knew. But the one thing that I had the DNA for was, you know, slums of Mumbai, Gulf War, HubSpot community. I had the DNA of community. I was always surrounded by community. And so we were forced to build a community to get customers. And then fast forward a number of years, we leveraged that community unknowingly to bootstrap to 10 million ARR with no marketing team. And then through that community, our investors who bought half the company, growth equity firm who acquired half the company and made us rich also came through that community. And, and that was the journey. But like, you know, in a, in a quick more sentence, after I left the day-to-day -day of Boast, I transitioned to the board. I actually ended up depressed. And I hit rock bottom. I face planted. And it was months of soul searching when I finally landed on a fitness community and I came back to good health physically and mentally. And as I started to look back, I'm like, all my life, I chased success looking for happiness. Success meaning other people's definition of success, money, financial freedom. When I found it, I was depressed. Why did that happen? And I started to reflect and I realized all through my journey, childhood, through growing up, through building the business, I was always around community. And the one time 
when I came into money is when I left the company and I, I thought the community had left me. I, I, I lost my tribe and I ended up depressed. And then what brought me to good health was community as well. And so when I, when I was sane mentally, I said as an homage to community, I should write a book on the value of community, not just personally, but also professionally for business. And so that's the quick journey. But if I had to outline three things as learnings for everyone wanting to get into entrepreneurship or wanting to excel at entrepreneurship, there are three, three key things. And if you get these three things right, you'll achieve everything you want. Number one is communication. Num because communication is everything from convincing your spouse that you want to never bring money or you won't bring money for a while to convincing early customers, to investors, to media, to even evangelizing your employees on the mission, vision is communication. The next one is creation. If you can't create, you, 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 know, you have nothing. And the third thing, which makes it all explode is consistency. Consistency on small actions lead to big outcomes. Creation plus communication plus consistency, just do it and, and you'll explode. Yeah, that, oh, first of all, that's amazing. There's a lot to unpack there. I have some notes, but I actually want to key in on the last thing. When you say consistency, can you give an example of something that you have been consistent with that has really snowballed and started to compound? Because I think consistency in the early days can be a little unfulfilling. The example, someone starts working out and you're like, guess what? You go to the gym the seventh day, the 14th day, 20th day in a row, you're probably not seeing results, but eventually it, it starts to show. Was that something that you're consistent with community that started to compound? Because I think people hear that and they're like, I get it, but like, where did it really help you? Definitely. I think, I think consistency has been a theme throughout my life, right? And, and things, and you know, it's easier to be consistent, guys, in things that bring you joy. It's very, 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 very difficult. And I'm going to say very a few more times to be consistent on things that don't bring you joy. So make sure when you're getting into any business, the customer you're serving, the thing you're doing brings you joy. If you hate your customers, you'll never last doing it. It's hard to be consistent, right? Like nobody is a magician. <laughs> Self-motivation is very hard. So you better be finding joy. Joy is a way to fix that motivation gap, right? A lot of people say, hey, you know, I think there's this famous quote I read recently. When you have a kid who sucks at math but excels at gymnastics, don't get them a math tutor. Get them a gymnastics coach, right? And, and so that's the thing. Do the things that uh, improve on the things that bring you joy because it'll be easier to be consistent. And so, you know, I'll cite other, two other examples of people and, and then dive into mine. You look at Gary Vaynerchuk. He never stopped creating videos. He's Gary V. You look at Jason Lemkin, founder of Saster, right? He was 2012. He started writing on Quora, two, three posts a day. He never stopped. Today, it's a 250,000 person community. Who's the single richest person in B2B SaaS? It's Larry Ellison. Why? He never sold a share. He just kept going and going and going. Who's one of the richest people in investing? It's Warren Buffett. Compound interest on consistency is what overnight success is. For us, we started our community. So when I say we, it's Boast. And, and I'll explain what Boast does. So globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given in funding by governments to businesses that develop new products or improve existing products. But it's a broken, cumbersome process. It takes a long time to get the money and it gets audited. Boast automates that. 
we basically help companies, entrepreneurs get money from the government. And our community that we build is called Traction. And I'll dive into, you know, in, a one, in one sentence, why we called our community Traction is because in the early days, you can start one of three kinds of communities. In general, you can start one of three kinds of communities. A community of practice. A community of practice is where you're educating your audience around a specific skill or craft. Like HubSpot in the early days, they didn't call it the HubSpot community, they called it the inbound community. Like Gainsight in the early days, they called it the customer success community. Like Traction was a community around practice of becoming better innovators. So we, you know, what do innovators want? They want to get traction on their products, right? And so we called it Traction. The second kind of community is a community of product where people come together to learn about your product, to build on your product, to become evangelists for your product. And then the third kind of community you can build is a community of play where people come together to have fun, like a Harley Davidson or a Nike running club, that kind of thing. Now, in the early days, when you don't have a product or you don't have product market fit, or you barely have any customers, or you're not a product that people use day in, day out like a notion, don't build a community of product because people think you're trying to sell them something. Build a community of practice. It's about falling in love with your customer and making them successful beyond your product or service. To me, Traction is our community that drove growth for Boast. And so what happened was early days at Boast, I picked up the phone and started dialing for dollars. We called manufacturing companies, construction companies, oil and gas companies. And the message was, hey, you know, if you give us your R&D data, we'll get you free money from the government, no equity, no interest. And they'd be like, you guys sound like a bunch of scammers, right? <laughs> and two, guy, two guys in a spare bedroom, no LinkedIn profile, barely anything about the company, no history. And some of them knew about it, but they were working with big four accounting firms to do it. So they're like, why would we trust you? And we said, ah, this cold calling thing, cold emailing thing is not working. So let's start storming these people's events. And we started going to manufacturing, oil and gas construction events. And we just couldn't resonate, man. We couldn't have a conversation with them because it felt like they were the old boys club. And we were two young guys who threw a suit jacket on top of a hoodie and went there. So dejected, we started going to startup events. And this is, this is 2012 now. So dejected, we're going to startup events. And it felt instantly like our tribe, right? We're, we're two guys in a new city who, who never lived there. And dejected, we're going to these startup events and we're like, it feels like our tribe. We're having these great conversations. And because the startup that we were doing boast was everything to us and all the entrepreneurs were coming, their startups was everything to them. They became our friends. We started having dinners with them, lunches with them. We started partying with them. We started participating in hackathons with them. And man, the conversations felt so good. It felt like an extended family for two guys who were new to a city. Now, looking back, Jim, there's one framework. Framework number one, when you're starting out, comes out. And that is, if you have no idea who to target, here's how you figure out who to target. One, do I have the passion and love for this audience? If you don't, building a community or a community-led business or a business in general is a labor of love. It's a marathon of the heart and mind you won't be able to play the long game. If you hate your customers, eventually you're going to friction with them. You're going to hate it. You're not want to, going to want to go into work. So do I have the passion for this? The second thing is, is it a small niche but growing? I think that's really important because in small niches, you find white spaces. In larger, saturated niches, it's hard to find white spaces. And for us startups, the startup market was a small but growing niche in 2012. Two, three, do they have the propensity to pay? Like, will they, will they be able to pay you someday? And four, 
is their ease of access. Now, if you look at it, when we are banging our heads against manufacturing and oil and gas and construction, massive markets, propensity to pay is huge. But we don't have a passion for that market. We don't vibe with them. But most importantly, we couldn't get access. And if you can't get access, you're going to die. So it's best to start with the market that gives you ease of access. So that was number one. So when we started storming these people's events, we found two white spaces. In 2012, all the events we went to, the speakers were sharing high-level CEO platitudes. This was a time where podcasting wasn't very prevalent for business. This was a time where LinkedIn as a distribution channel wasn't very prevalent. So all the content were some blogs, like folks like Neil Patel and Jason Fried and Jason Lemkin writing blogs. And, and so like the events were like high-level CEO platitudes. Now think about it yourself, right? If you're a business at zero or one and Elon Musk shows up, and he gives a talk. You're going to be inspired for sure, but you already started the business. You don't need the inspiration. What you need is how do I get my first customers? How do I get my first angel investors? How do I launch a product hunt or whatever properly, right? How do I hire my first salesperson? How do I train? You need like tacticals. You don't need aspirations. You don't need inspiration. And so we're like white space number one. Great. The second white space we found was the media and that region wasn't covering startups. No service provider wanted to serve them. In fact, when we started the company, our competitors were big four and everything else would tell us, man, you guys are going to go bankrupt. Like these startups will never pay you and you'll go bankrupt. Now, fast forward 2023, it played out really well because the startup market has exploded and all our competitors are launching startup programs, right? It feels so contrived. Everyone has a startup program. Where were you when, when we needed you really, right? And so my answer to these people always was, your customers don't want to work with us and <laughs> you don't want to serve people like us. So we're left to serve our own. So with those two learnings, learning one, we started hosting meetups. Hey, Jim, I'm bringing right, Stacy, who's built a company to 5 million, and she's going to talk exactly how she got her first 10 B2B enterprise customers. Or I'm bringing like Maria and she's going to talk about how she used like a freemium model to get to X thousand users. And we'd be like, come to the co-working space. The co-working space would give us a meetup space for free. There's free pizza. 10 people showed up. The next one, more people showed up and more people showed up. We just never stopped. We kept doing these meetups and meetups and meetups and meetups. We never stopped. Now, one day, 200 people show up to the co-working space. And so we had to hijack all the aisles and like find a makeshift projector and put it in the middle. And then the guys in the co-working space are like, listen, man, you guys can't do this. Like you can't just run a conference here and, and, and call it a day, right? Like, you know, you got to go and find a venue. You can't do this ever again. You're disrupting the whole space. Or now that gave us the incentive to evolve into a conference and now many conferences. And we've had like the CEO of Uber and we've had... Twilio CEO and all these big names come to our events over time. So that was that was the one thing which I was really consistent on is didn't stop doing those events. And when the pandemic happened, we had to shut down a conference. I had massive PTSD from trying to do a two-day virtual summit because I can't sit through two, two days of content. And I was also nervous that all the tech is going to fail. Like everything possible will go wrong when you try to launch 60 speakers into two days of content. Like, and so you know, when you're in it, Jim, everything looks like you're throwing spaghetti on the wall. When you look back, it's a profound framework, right? So when pandemic came, I think we were like 30,000 subscribers. 
And then this conference, we had to shut down. We're like, oh man, we built the whole business around community and now it's going to go to shit. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, we can't do a virtual summit. So we reached out to all our speakers and we said, hey, would you be willing to do a one hour live ask me anything session? So it was this, what we're doing right now, but live on Zoom. So our audience would join, ask questions. There was great interaction. So it was like more, it wasn't one way. It was like two way or interactive. And very quickly, it started getting steam and we transitioned from doing one a week to twice a week. Now, doing those two live AMA webinars a week over two years took our audience from 30,000 subscribers to 120,000 subscribers or something like that. So those two, two examples, two examples of consistency, but one very funny framework comes out of it, right? It's this concept of the golden goose. Doing a virtual summit, right, once a year is like you kill the golden goose right? And, and you've now all year, your promotion is come to my virtual summit, come to my virtual summit, come to my virtual summit. But when you do one or two speakers a week, same, same number of speakers, same number of content, not only is it easier on your team, but it's, it plays into this concept of compound interest. You're reaching out to your audience now with a different message every week. Learn this today, learn that tomorrow, learn this next week. And they don't feel overwhelmed with you're blasting them with come to virtual summit. It's like, come to this session, come to this session. And so more and more and more people started joining the shareability speakers started inviting people and our subscribers just kept growing. And so, so that is two, two areas where consistency worked really well for us. That's a really good story, especially hearing, cause I'm sure in those early days of the meetups, when you have an event and it's like 14 people, then 17 people, you're like, all right, I guess we'll keep doing this. But to see it hit that inflection point and go to the next level is super exciting. And I have a, and that's also really good advice on, yes, you could do the one epic conference a year, but spread it out through the year. It obviously had a big impact on growth. So what I'm interested in is, and I want to come back to eventually like how to build a community. But what I want to hit on is you do a good job of building this community traction. It's growing. You build your tribe, like-minded people, but then you have your start at Bose and it's going on. Talk to me about how do you land the plane on, without being salesy, taking the traction community and educating them about Bose? And how did you get your first 10 customers or your first 100 or first 1,000 customers? Because I think that's a very delicate balance in managing an authentic community, but then you have a business that you have to run. Yeah, definitely. See, when we're two guys in the early days, we're selling an obscure service, which is give us your R&D data and we'll give you money, right? A lot of people will not do that. They're not going to give you your data. So what is missing here? Trust, credibility. You got to build credibility. And so I, I, I shared about the consistency on the events online, offline, and then off online. The second thing what we did was I said, the media wasn't covering startups. So I reached out to the local newspaper and I said, could you give me a column, you know, the startup community needs love. Innovation drives is the future. It's the lifeblood of our country, of our economy. And they said, listen, the, you know, we don't cover startups. There's so many other subjects to cover. Then I went and asked a friend if I could blog on their blog. And it was a, it was a regional blog, like the TechCrunch of Canada. And, and they let me, right? They want content. They want contributors. And I drove so much tra traffic to that post through friends, like in hundreds of tweets. And then I went to back to the editor of the newspaper and like said, look at this. This post has hundreds of retweets. If you give me a blog, I'll do that for you. If you give me a column. He's like, fine, I'm going to give you a blog column. 
nothing else. Now, when I wrote that first blog, I said, you know what? I could write any number of things. I could write about, you know, startup knowledge. But, you know, folks like Jason Fried and Neil Patel and all these guys are already talking about it. And I'm not the expert. I can't lead people. I'm not there yet. I can only curate content from others, right? From other knowledgeable experts. But I'm like, what would make this stick? Like, what would, what would make it, like, go crazy in this community? One thing we knew is people weren't getting love for their startups. So we called this column Startup of the Week. Now, I never knew he would give me another post beyond that first column. But I called it, you know, just a gut, right? Like, I called it Startup of the Week. I covered a founder. When a founder who's never been covered in the local newspaper gets that coverage, they share it with their family, their friends, and everyone. And that got even more shares and retweets than everything else. So in a couple of days, the editor messages me and says, hey, if you commit to writing this every week, I will give you a print column. Boom. You know what happened? Even in 2023, man, there are so many blogs when somebody is in a print of a newspaper, you're legitimate. And so got the print column. And now it became, went from a one blog on a gut. You know, I, I always say when you're an entrepreneur, you got to beg for forgiveness, not ask for permission in many cases. So I called it Startup of the Week. It exploded. He gave me a print column. Now, three things that that, that whole Startup of the Week thing did for us. Number one, if we ever blogged on our website, Getting our SEO up for a new website would take a long time. Now I got a weekly backlink from the highest domain authority website in the country, the, the, low, the national newspaper web, uh, website, right? Post Media. The second thing what I got as a print column then was instant credibility. Two obscure guys called Bose now are like, oh man, the, the local newspaper is endorsing these guys. They're columnists. Three, it created this weird dynamic where Every Monday at six or seven in the morning, the entrepreneur is going to the newsstand and buying a bunch of print copies and taking photos and sharing it with family members. And then four, we put a like a woofoo form in there saying, if you want to be covered, fill out this form. So now what happened was the online thing that we did consistently was startup of the week for two or three years. Our email database kept growing because people kept applying to be featured in startup of the week. And then we'd invite them to the meetups we did. Right. And so boomerang effect, boomerang effect there. Yeah, I love that. And like looking back, you absolutely look like a genius, but I'm sure at the time it's like, wow, this is like starting to work. It's like stair stepping. And even having the framework of startup of the week is, is, is quite genius. But answer, but how did you turn these people into paying customers? And can you give some context? Because you're building credibility with the community. You're building credibility where, hey, you are an editor now of a print publication. Talk about, as you build this credibility, how do you land that plane on getting those first few customers and clients? And by the way, what is the business model for how much they, they pay you guys? We, do, we take a percentage. We don't, we don't charge up front. When we get them the money from the government, we pay them. We, we, we take a percentage. No. So over time, that evolved, of course, right? See, well, uh, I'll, I'll share how I landed the first customers, but then I want to dive into how understanding your customer will help you go beyond your initial product. So when we started bringing these people together, they became our friends, right? We could, we could just ask, like, as a founder, you need many other services. So like, hey, you're spending money in development. Have you 
you know, are you getting tapping into R&D tax credits, government funding? They're like, no. Or some are like, oh, we're working this person, that person. I'm like, would you be willing to give our offering a tie? They'll be like, yeah, you're doing all this good work. This other vendor is not doing anything other than charging us money and, and providing a service. We're friends. Of course, I'll give you business. We just asked, man. That's it. We just asked and we shared our vision and the credibility and, and how we could do a good job. And we just asked literally and they gave us business. And some people are like, oh, I'm locked into a contract or I'm not sure or your rates are, their rates are bottom of the barrel. I'm like, it's totally fine. Anything else I can help you with? Can I make intros, whatever? We were true community builders even after I stopped selling actively and we hired our first salespeople. And even to this day, we're not transactional salespeople. We're selling a high value service that touches people's R&D data. Our job is not to just you know, be like, give me your data, I'll give you money. But it's like, hey, how can we help you grow your business? What are the service you need? Whatever the help you need, can we make a connection for you? So there was, it was as simple as that. Honestly, it sounds very complicated, but it's a combination of doing a lot of events, partnering with people on a lot of events, and then just asking. Because now we had the social proof, so we could ask. And if they say no, that's fine. Anything else we can connect you with? Great. Let me know when your renewal comes up with the competitor you're working with, and maybe we'll have a conversation then. And they're like, yeah, totally fine. Right? A lot of people, what they do is they think community is charity. They never ask. Dude, can ask. Just ask, right? You're, you're providing value. Like, ask yourself the question. If two people, if one person is providing you so much value and another person is just providing you a service, it's transactional, and then you find out this, this person that's providing you value is also now offering that service at the same rate. Would you not do business with the person providing you free value? Yeah. yeah. There's so much, something to be said for two things you're calling out, which is, you know, reciprocation is, is very real and, and people want to do that, but also ju just simply asking in an authentic way, especially if it's with people you have a relationship with, because it's funny, I think a lot of people will be hatching an idea behind the scenes and they'll never say anything or ask anybody, you know, and they'll like try and go get any business and they're trying to do it with people they don't even know. But it's like starting with people you have earned trust with and you have a true relationship can can go a long way. So th this is super eye-opening because you're hitting on a strategy of like community-led growth that is not easy. It's not as simple as, hey, let me turn on the Google ads or the meta ads and drive traffic, turn on SEO. And you, you've done it in a really impressive way. Can you talk to me uh, with both about the inflection points? Because I want to get to the path where it's like you essentially bootstrapped an eight-figure company, like what were those milestones you hit along the way that were either like tough growing pains or big unlocks for growth where you went to another level? Because that is um, very impressive, man. Yeah, definitely. There's some key milestones, but honestly, man, it's, it's really funny. And I, when we're going through it, truly felt a lot of throwing spaghetti on the wall and some things worked and whatever worked, we scaled it whatever didn't work, we axed it. And then we tried new things and went through this journey. But I'll maybe, you know, boil down the framework looking back, which is the profound learning. The startups are built in phases, okay? So phase one is validation. What is validation? I have an idea. Can I get 10 people who are not my siblings and my relatives to pay me to try it out? 10, 10, 10 people who are unaffiliated with me to pay me to try it out. 
what is the leading indicator of validation? I'm having lots and lots of conversations and my message is resonating. And what's the lagging indicator? 10 people pay me to try it out. At that point, you're not a CEO or a president or whatever C-suite title you have. You are an individual contributor. Now, next phase after validation is product market fit. Say you've expanded that. You know, I'm talking in terms of B2B SaaS now, just, just to keep it simple, right? Say your product is $20,000 a year. Your next phase is product market fit. You've extended that from 10 customers to 50 customers. And the goal of product market fit is retention. Retention means at validation, your message resonated. I had a problem. You had a solution. I said, I'm going to be willing to give you a try. Product market fit means now every time I have that problem, I keep using your product. I don't leave. High retention equals product market fit. So what is the leading indicator of high retention? It's engagement. Am I using it? Am I using the service day in, day out? Am I getting value from it? After product market fit, it felt like the next phase, which was finding a repeatable, scalable channel to acquire customers. You can run ads, you can do sales, you can do direct response, you can do a whole bunch of things. For us, it was community and community management in the sense business development to that community. And eventually I'll, I'll walk through how we added other channels. But, but that was it. And so in the early days, we didn't know community is going to work. We kept doing these events and we kept getting customers from it and we started leveraging it. We didn't know if people would stick, but people kept renewing with us. So we knew had product market fit and then community became a thing. So that's, that's how I would break it down in terms of inflection points. And then now we'll talk about revenue inflection points, right? At, Validation, 10 customers, 10,000, 20,000, like 50,000 50, to 100,000 revenue is like good validation. But that's not revenue, right? That is like pilot revenue. I paid you to try it out. When you get to product market fit, you're like half a million, a million maybe recurring revenue with an ACV 20,000 product, assuming high retention. Yeah, people are not leaving. When you get to product channel fit, maybe you're two and a half, three million in revenue. And then you get to a point of scale, you're at maybe five-ish million revenue. And scale means I have one kind of customer coming through one kind of channel to get one kind of value. Say it's a bootstrap company. I've only worked prior to Boast at mostly venture-backed companies, but this is a bootstrap model. You can't do 10 things. You'll fail. You don't have the liberty to do it, right? I have, don't have the money. I don't have the energy. And I can't please everyone. I can't build like a compound startup. I can't, I can't do any number of things because I don't have the money. Customers are paying me, so I need to get one kind of customer to get one kind of value that comes through one kind of channel. Very calm. So then at scale, what you're doing is 75% of your effort is putting fuel on the fire. More customers of the same kind explode the channel and provide the same value. 25% of the time now, new products, new markets, new channels, new, new things like the mistake a lot of us make at scale is we try to also add a new product, then we try to add a new market, then we try to add a new channel. Dude, when you were like a bootstrap small company, you focused on one customer, one channel, one product, and then at scale now you're trying like a new product, new market, a new channel. It doesn't work that way, in my view, or it's very, very hard. So I think at scale, what you need to do is pick like one bet. Is the new product going to be the big bet? Is the new channel going to be the big bet? 
is the new market going to be a big bet, right? Just just pick that and focus and go through that same thing. If it's new market, validation, product market fit, product channel fit and scale. New product, same thing. New uh, validation, product market fit, product channel fit and scale. Go calmly through that same process. Now, the journey, um, the journey of a founder, when you're at validation, you're an individual contributor. You're doing everything and washing the kitchen sink. At product market fit, you become a manager, okay? so you're managing one or two people, maybe you hired them. Maybe if you're selling, if you're a sales founder, you now taught the playbook to two people and you're managing them. At product channel fit, you become a VP. You hire a manager because now you've hired more salespeople, you've hired more engineers, and then you go to become a VP. And you've hired a manager to manage those individual contributors. At scale is when you become a C-suite. A lot of us delude ourselves, and that's why we start doing too many things that we're C-suite. You're not C-suite until you hit scale, whatever you say. You need to be hands-on, and you need to, as a founder, stretch in multiple areas until you're at a point of scale. At scale, then you can say, you know what? I've hired VPs who will manage different departments, and now me as a founder, I can focus on things that'll be the second act. I can focus on strategy. That's what I feel the journey and the inflection points of a bootstrap company is. And more or less, that was or has been our journey. Now, following this journey, I want to talk about how your product shifts, right? Or how do you add more products over time? It all comes from the aspiration of the customer. So when you, you know, I, I talked about how you land on the market, right? The passion, the size of the market, small niche, is it growing? Is there a propensity to pay? And is there ease of access? And once you've landed on this market, it's all about learning that market, understanding that market. I talked about how we went to events, hung out with them, had dinners with them, partied with them, participated in hackathons with them. Through that, we understood not only their pains and their problems and their goals, which are temporary, like goals change year over year, maybe two years, three years over years, problems change. But we also understood their aspirations. Aspirations are usually forever. Aspiration will add you, latching onto your ideal customer's aspiration will enable you to add multiple products over time. And I'll translate it to how it, how it, what it meant to boast. Because we understood the aspiration of the customer and what stood in their way, our purpose went from being, we automate tax credits for entrepreneurs to being enabling innovators to change the world. Now that sounds cheesy, but that's what drove the passion for it. Enabling innovators to change the world. Your why? Why do you want to enable innovators to change the world? Every dollar spent in innovation returns 20 to the economy. Vaccines, robots, clean drinking water is a function of innovation. Yet 99% of the innovators, innovations die on the vine in the last 15 years, more than 50% of the Fortune 500 companies have evaporated. That's why our purpose, our forever, which will last beyond me or Alex or anyone else in the company, is enabling innovators to change the world. Our vision became the someday. What will the world be because of your existence? We'll accelerate innovation. Our mission, meaning how you do it, became through funding and through know-how. Because getting money is not enough. The knowledge on how to innovate is also important. And then our values became, you know, the things that we show up with, how we behave every waking hour. Now, talking about that aspiration, which was enabling innovators to change the world, that helped us to now go on this journey of going from automating tax credits for, for businesses to then we raised a $100 million 
credit facility to lend to them for R&D. So we went from R&D tax automation to R&D lending. Now we have this unique data set, which is collecting your technical data, your financial data, and banking data. The next product we're launching based on that data set is enabling you to innovate faster, R&D intelligence. So we went from a tax credit R&D and government, government funding automation, tax credit automation company to now going into an R&D intelligence company. We wouldn't be able to do that or make that leap if we were like this small mission, right? It tied to the aspiration. So aspiration is forever. Now, once you understood the aspiration of your customer, it's important to understand their circle of influence. And I'll tell you why this is important. But a circle of influence is like, who do they follow? Who are the influencers in the space that this ideal customer respects? Who do they fund? Meaning what tools, products, services they pay for? And then where do they frequent? What blogs they read? What magazines they read? What events do they go to? What platforms do they hang out? When you have lists of this and you're trying to build a community, the people who your ideal customers follow, you can invite as guests to speak at your events. The people that they, other service providers they pay money to, you can partner with them or ask them to sponsor, right? So they become your co-hosts. They become your referral partners. That's how you build relationships. You're co-hosting an event. Of course, you can start referring each other. And the platforms they frequent is where you can distribute their content. Like now, for example, if they read TechCrunch a lot, we started inviting journalists from TechCrunch to moderate sessions at our events. I didn't want to hawk the stage. I wanted the social proof for Boast. If TechCrunch shows up every year and moderates three sessions, guess what? At our event, you got TechCrunch. And guess what? You got like the CEO of Twilio. And you got like Intercom sponsoring. So when a founder comes like, oh, it's my tribe. So figure out your target market. Understand your target market's goals, problems, and aspirations. Like think, if I had to write an encyclopedia or a book on everything you need to know about this aspiration, what would be the chapters, subchapters, and key topics? And then understand the circle of influence then everything becomes calm and you can go on this journey, right? Validation, product market fit, product channel fit, and then scale. Yeah, I love the step of product channel fit because I think a lot of people don't focus on that enough, but that's huge to get to that scale phase and and really thinking through that kind of overall mission. It can sound like warm and, and fuzzy, but it's key to speak the language of your early adopters, your fast followers, the masses to, to know what you stand for and care about. And w- one more question that I want to ask, it's one that I like to ask everybody, and it's around, as you look at your professional career, what's the nicest thing anyone's done for you? It could be an actual nice thing. It could be a time when someone gave you a little bit of tough love. What's something that comes to mind when I give you that question? What's the nicest thing that somebody's done for me? Honestly, man, it's too many to name. It's so many to name that I literally wrote a book as an homage to the community members that have done things for me, right? Like every little thing, man, from like being a kid, spending my summers in the slums of Mumbai to all the people that have mentored me to everyone that showed up at our traction event as volunteers, as uh, community members, as speakers, they've all been a part of this journey. So it's just really hard. But if I had to pick a few people, my co-founder, 
for believing in me that you know and asking me can you start this company to uh, my our partner at traction so we built traction as a standalone community although it is a community for us that that we you know it fueled boast we partnered with a nonprofit launch academy because they had the muscle power of volunteers and the profits from traction go to fund that nonprofit and ray walia co-founder traction co-founder launch academy co-founder traction with boast and so he's been a big part of it my brother who helped me realize that your true purpose in life is bringing people together jason lemkin early days of boast he would give us free booths at his conference he has connected us to some of our biggest customers and partners how do i meet jason lemkin actually i invited him i cold emailed him to moderate a fireside chat with ryan smith ceo of qualtrics at a 2015 event we built such camaraderie he became an unofficial mentor to me he wrote the forward in my book he even invited me to join as a board member after i left the day to day of my company in one of his companies so just too many too many to name and personally my my wife man like you know what's funny is people undervalue their spouses my job as a founder was to do one thing to figure out one company that works eventually i went worked at a number of startup uh, number of startups they all failed then did two startups they failed then did an events company where the third co-founder ran off with all the profits we had to sue him after paying lawyer fees i walked away with nothing and then finally boast hit my wife works a job she's a physician because i brought no money she paid the bills because i was round the clock as an entrepreneur she looked after our kids she made sure finances were there she made sure there was food on the table the house was managed everything else i had to just do one thing and even the broken clock is right twice i often use the word luck because if look at every point in my life it was luck that came in some way through the community like when the pandemic came we had to shut down a conference we moved everything online the community started growing there was one window where they said you could have have in person events so we hosted this event and a growth equity firm came to that event through a partner in the community partner i said you know who do they fund who are the other people entrepreneurs buy from or service so a partner said hey you should have this growth equity firm out of new york so they came to the event we put them on a panel they loved the event they reached out saying hey could you join our venture partner network would love to give you carry in the in the companies you refer i said hey this community thing is something i do on the side i have a business to run they understood the business they were shocked that we got so far with no marketing and just 30 people high gross margins profitable and they offered to invest we didn't we weren't looking for investors lucks out that they're not traditional vc a growth equity firm in, when they invest they let the founders liquidate they let you take money off the table so you de-risk in the short term and leave enough equity so you can play the long game they only mostly invest in bootstrap founders at north of 5 to 7 million in revenue we're on the cusp of 10 and that is profitably growing high gross margins etc came through the community i'm everything i am because of uh, the community and have nothing but uh, the community to thank and so i tell people luck and risk are different sides of the same coin most people just never flip enough because when every time you flip as an entrepreneur it's going to be risk it's going to be risk it's going to be risk luck and risk are different sides of the same coin most people don't get lucky because they don't flip enough if you keep flipping eventually you will hit luck 
That's cool, man. And I agree that the right spouse is the ultimate life hack, especially if you're a, a founder trying to start something. But this has been so fun. And first, I'd love for you to direct people where they can learn more about you and what you're doing. And just so you guys know, Lloyd's putting out a book that is like beyond impressive. If you thought this podcast was good, what he has done with Grassroots to Greatness, I'm telling you, it is packed with tactics and stuff and, and just advice on how to do this. But yeah, where can we direct people? Definitely. So I'm very active on LinkedIn, Lloyd Lobo. There's an E in my name. So it's it's the English Lloyd with an E in it. I don't know why my mom put it in there. Growing up, I got made fun of a lot. And then eventually, I, as I grew, when I was grown up, I asked her, why did you do this? Everyone butchers my name. And she said, I always thought you'll be a business person someday and you want to trademark your first name. It's a traditional English name. You could never trademark it by throwing an E in there. <laughs> now you can. And, you know, I guess E stands for entrepreneur. But nonetheless, Lloyd Lobo on LinkedIn. I'm active there. I've been busy the last couple of weeks with the book, so I haven't posted, but I post like at least once, twice a week with like valuable content. And my content always does well, 400 plus likes, lots of engagement. It's all tactics. The book From Grassroots to Greatness is on fromgrassrootstogreatness.com. It'll have bonus content. It'll be a deep, Notion template uh, with Notion Doc workbook with templates for each chapters, accompanying videos, audio, everything you need to build and scale a community. The book is a lot of stories, not as academic, but stories, the frameworks I shared, but in stories throughout the book, like how to go from an audience to cult-like phenomena and then deeper academic templates in the Notion. And then we'll have the podcast and all the interviews as well. So. You can use it as your ultimate resource. We designed the book full color because, you know, community needs to have energy, right? And, you know, who's going to read a dull book about community, right? My brother inspired me. He inspired the name. He designed the cover. So love to him for forcing me and beating me into doing this. He, he proved me wrong that you know, he said, I'm going to prove you wrong that never judge a book by a cover is, is BS, right? He's like, I'm going to prove that statement wrong. So, so love to him for, for that. So from grassrootstogreatness.com, I put the digital copy for 99 cents, but if you want the collectible, you can, you can buy the hardcover as well. 99 cents, I mean, I could have given it for free. I wanted everyone to have it. I could have given it for free. If I gave it for free, here's the thing. I have to spread it myself. I got to like beg everyone and hope it goes viral. If I put it for 99 cents, your reviews are verified on Amazon, and then Amazon will spread it for you the more reviews it has. So that was, uh, that's the story there. And, you know, one thing I want to share uh, a profound learning. When I decided to write this book, I talked to lots and lots of community members, thousand count. I rewatched all our traction video content from the past seven years. And I looked behind and researched every iconic brand out there. And I found something very interesting. Every obscure idea that eventually went on to become a global phenomenon, from Christianity to CrossFit, every obscure idea that eventually became a global phenomenon went through four stages, the same four stages. People listen to you or buy your product, you have an audience. When you bring that audience together to interact with one another, it becomes a community. When that community comes together to create impact towards a far greater purpose than your product or profits, it becomes a movement. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals, 
over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. Follow that path, audience, community, movement, religion. What most of us have these days with LinkedIn and social are audiences. Unless and until you turn that audience into a community, which is bi-directional communication, interaction, people interacting with people, you won't surpass the audience and go to a movement or a cult. And that's what Mr. Beast did. And that's what Harley Davidson did. Ultimately, yesterday's innovation always becomes tomorrow's commodity. But if you build a community, you won't become a commodity. Lots of talk on AI. Says someone who built a successful AI company with the power of community. But beyond that, you look at OpenAI who created ChatGPT. ChatGPT wouldn't exist and OpenAI wouldn't exist without community. No, super helpful, man. I love the distinction between an audience and a community. I think a lot of people don't understand that. But Lloyd, thank you so much for the time, man. Uh, we're always trying to find clips to like make videos and you drop like quite a few. I have a page of notes here, but thank you so much. Sounds good, man. Thank you for hosting me. I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where Remotely Talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A-plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.